0: From the American College of Gastroenterology, this is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Jacqueline Gallen, founder of GastroGirl, a patient-centric company focused on improving digestive health. Today, we'll be discussing the treatment of IBS with amitriptyline, a tricyclic antidepressant, with Philip Schoenfeld, editor-in-chief. Hi, Dr. Schoenfeld. So tell us why this is such an important topic for our listeners today. Well, Jackie,
1: optimal treatment of IBS requires docs to prescribe medications that will improve abdominal discomfort as well as improving bowel symptoms. And both the ACG guideline as well as the AGA guideline on management of IBS provide conditional recommendations suggesting that low-dose tricyclic antidepressants may be used for global IBS symptoms. And, you know, low doses of tricyclic antidepressants are used for many disorders that are associated with neuropathic pain, like fibromyalgia. And that's because they modify pain signaling through the central nervous system. Unfortunately, my experience is that many gastroenterologists may be hesitant to prescribe tricyclic antidepressants for a couple of reasons. First, there are different mild side effects that may occur with low-dose tricyclic antidepressants, like dry mouth or drowsiness or fatigue or even a little bit of constipation due to their anticholinergic pharmacology. Now, that can be minimized by using low doses of the medication, but again, it still may make physicians are a little hesitant to prescribe it. Second, and probably more importantly, gastroenterologists need to take a few minutes and explain to patients that IBS may be caused by defects in brain-gut communication. And therefore, when a tricyclic antidepressant is prescribed, it's going to be helpful to minimize pain signal being sent to the brain from the gut. Now that's an oversimplification. But what you're emphasizing to the patient is that you're prescribing low doses of tricyclic antidepressants because of its pain-modifying quality, not as a treatment for depression or anxiety. Because there's still a stigma about treating depression or anxiety, and, and you don't want the patient perceiving that you just think all their symptoms are in their head, and they don't have anything actually wrong with their gut. And that all takes a few minutes. And I think that sometimes makes gastroenterologists feel uncomfortable. I mean, you can tell me what the patient perspective on this is.
0: Well, you're absolutely right about there being a stigma around the use of these antidepressants. You know, IBS patients in particular, because it's such a multifactorial condition, feel that, you know, that they don't want to be told by their physician that it's all in their head or that it's caused by anxiety or depression. So they might be hesitant to want to go down this route. But I think also on a positive note, there's been so much advancement in our understanding of the connection and the brain-gut connection. And there's been so much progress in patient education around that connection that I'm hopeful that patients may be more open to this type of treatment intervention than they have been in the past because they're addressing a really important connection in the body, which is between the brain and the gut. So, but I agree, like it, it, they do need to understand even more that connection. And with that said, how do you educate your patients about IBS and the rationale for using these tricyclic antidepressants?
1: I emphasize to patients that irritable bowel syndrome is caused by defective actions of the colonic smooth muscle. It squeezes too slowly or it squeezes too quickly and that can squeeze down real hard and cause spasm or it can get stretched out and make somebody feel bloated and that there are different reasons why that colonic smooth muscle may function defectively and that part of it is that all that excessive pain signals or bloating signals or distension signals are sent from the gut through the enteric nervous system, through the central nervous system, and up to the brain. And what tricyclic antidepressants are doing is modifying or slowing down pain signaling to the brain. And that's, again, an oversimplification, but it emphasizes to the patient why this kind of medication may be beneficial.
0: Now, before I jump to the next question, I want to just pick up on what you said, because from the patient perspective... Patients want to understand why something is being prescribed. I think most patients. We don't want to just be handed a prescription or accept that, okay, here's the treatment, without understanding the mechanism of how that drug or product is going to work in our body. And I think you make a really important point about education. The more patients understand what's going on in their body, what's affecting, what's causing or triggering the IBS potentially, the more open they'll be to try different types of treatments based on their understanding of how it's going to work and and impact them. So I just want to call out that because I think the education of patients, even though it's a little time-consuming when you have a few minutes with a patient in the office, it's so critical to not only getting them in the right treatment, but also to be compliant and continuing to follow the doctor's recommendations. Based on your summary and the new issue of Evidence-Based GI, It sounds like the ACG and AGA guidelines provide a conditional recommendation and suggest TCAs to be used for IBS. So what's the significance of a conditional recommendation? In an evidence-based guideline,
1: a conditional recommendation is used when there's limited randomized controlled trial data demonstrating efficacy of a medication. That's why the word suggest is used with conditional recommendations. It's not a strong recommendation, meaning that most patients should definitely get the treatment. It's suggested as something to consider for patients. And the issue with tricyclic antidepressants is that there have been several small randomized control trials that were for relatively short periods of time, usually only for about eight weeks. And they had design limitations, which made it difficult to estimate just how beneficial tricyclic antidepressants were. And ultimately, the study we're going to talk about in a moment is really important because it's a very well designed study that provides precise information about the efficacy of tricyclic antidepressants.
0: And it also sounds like this is the largest randomized controlled trial examining the issue with over 450 patients, and that it was also very well designed, and it reports results based on six months of treatment, so you get a better idea about how, how well tricyclic antidepressants work for managing this chronic condition. Could you now discuss the study design and results in more detail? These were patients who met Rome criteria for
1: IBS. They included patients who had IBS with constipation, mixed IBS, and IBS with diarrhea, although I'd note that over 80% were either IBS diarrhea or IBS mix. And they had previously been tried on diet modification, and fiber, or other first-line therapy before being prescribed a low-dose tricyclic antidepressant or placebo. So, patients got amitriptyline 10 milligrams at night or a placebo, and over the course of the first eight weeks, they could gradually increase their dose of their medication, how many tablets they took, to max out at a dose of 30 milligrams of amitriptyline at night or taking three tablets of a placebo at night based on their symptoms. And something called the IBS symptom severity score was used on a monthly basis to assess the severity of their symptoms. And the primary endpoint was how much that IBS symptom score changed at six months, as well as talking about whether or not they had improvement in their subjective global assessment of IBS symptoms. And the bottom line was that these patients had moderate to severe IBS with a IBS symptom severity score at baseline of around 270. At six months, patients who got amitriptyline had an improvement in their IBS symptom severity score that was 27 points better than patients on placebo. So, about a 10% additional improvement in symptom score with amitriptyline versus placebo. And I'd note also that if you're just saying to patients, did you have considerable or complete relief of your IBS symptoms at six months, that was 36% with patients on amitriptyline and 23% with patients on placebo. So, It's a fairly detailed study, and I just encourage our listeners to go to the December issue of EBGI to read the summary of this study. And I should emphasize, it was done by Alex Ford and his colleagues in the United Kingdom, and it was published in Lancet in November.
0: It sounds like there was a small but significant benefit with tricyclic antidepressants to reduce these IBS symptoms although a small number of patients discontinue treatment due to side effects like dry mouth or drowsiness. So how will you apply this research to management of patients? In my own practice, Jackie, I tend to use nortriptyline
1: at a dose of 25 milligrams at night, and I may increase it to 50 milligrams, depending on the patient's response. Now, I tend to use nortriptyline as opposed to amitriptyline in my own practice because nortriptyline is considered what we call a secondary amine. That means it tends to have less anticholinergic side effects compared to a tertiary amine like amitriptyline. I usually only use it in patients with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea because one of the side effects of an anticholinergic medication is constipation. So... I tend to see most of the benefit in patients with IBS with diarrhea, and because the constipation side effect is a benefit in those patients. I, I don't ever use it in patients with IBS with constipation. And I take a few moments to educate the patients that they might feel a little bit drowsy or fatigued or get a dry mouth with this. I educate them also that it may take up to 12 weeks before they begin to see abdominal pain improvement. And I try to set appropriate expectations for patients, that a successful response means a decrease in the frequency and severity of abdominal discomfort, that they probably won't get total resolution of their pain. I should also mention that I don't prescribe selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that is SSRIs like fluoxetine or paroxetine, because they haven't demonstrated clear benefit In small RCTs. And both the ACG and AGA guidelines suggest against using SSRIs. However, I do use a lot of serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRI. And the most commonly used one is duoxetine. These SNRIs, which are FDA approved for depression and anxiety, are also shown to be very effective neuromodulators of chronic pain. They're FDA-approved for diabetic neuropathic pain. They're FDA-approved for fibromyalgia. So if I have somebody with IBS with constipation who has a lot of pain from brain-gut dysfunction, or if a patient can't tolerate a tricyclic antidepressant, then I use an SNRI like duoxetine starting at a dose of 30 milligrams a day And then I may increase to 60 milligrams a day after two months while also emphasizing to patients I'm using this because of its impact on chronic pain signaling as a neuromodulator, but also explaining to patients we don't have well-designed large RCTs in IBSC patients. So you tell me, hopefully that kind of an explanation would be helpful to a, a patient in this situation.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, as patients, you know, and myself, I have IBS, so I understand the journey. We want to know we have options because it's such a multifactorial condition. There are many things that could impact our symptoms. This study really provides some hope, if you will, that there's another tool in the toolbox for for not only patients, but for gastroenterologists to really help their patients understand how this could potentially benefit them. But it's so important that gastroenterologists are willing to step up therapy for IBS patients beyond just using fiber and diet, diet modification and Imodium. So from a patient perspective, we really want our gastroenterologists to, to, you know, to be our education partners, to help us understand that the that you're prescribing this medication because it modifies pain signaling and it's not to treat depression, to make us feel even more bad about, you know, when we have chronic conditions, we feel bad inherently, like, oh, there's something wrong with me. We don't need added insult, like, oh, we're depressed, and that's why I have this pain, because that just puts barriers up, right? So it's really important to have positive education, just like you explained in this uh, podcast episode. And also, you know, it's really important how important it is for gastroenterologists to also be sympathetic listeners, and how beneficial this can be for management too. And I also don't want to put it all in the GIs. Patients also have a responsibility in partnership with their provider to be very open and transparent about everything that they're taking, what they're doing, and what's happening in their life that could be impacting those symptoms. So together you can make the best decision for your treatment option and um, work together as a team. So with that said, I'd like to thank you again for joining me today. Please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at ACG underscore EBGI, where we host tutorials every Wednesday and look for our blast email from the ECG on December 13th with our new issue.